5: This is the John Fuglesang Podcast.
6: Good evening, everybody. This is Nayara filling in for John Fugel saying you can tell me everything tonight. We have a lot to discuss. You've heard me a few times as a guest on John's show. I, I host across the channel, and I like to take that intersection between foreign affairs, what's going on around the world, connected to how we're experiencing life here in the United States, especially in this year of 2024. What is happening? folks. I mean, we are certainly experiencing quite a lot of President Biden today weighing in on the Alabama state Supreme Court ruling that that's the ruling that effectively dismantled in vitro fertilization for families, not just women, but families in Alabama that the Supreme Court saying they effectively recognize embryos, the fertilized you know, sperm and egg put together before they've even started to divide further into other cells, that those two cells together are a baby. That's a human life. And now we have the third Alabama IVF clinic shutting down because they cannot operate. um, They can't, hold on to the um, embryos at all. Uh, They don't know what they might be charged with in terms of any criminal activity, if any embryos they create are, for whatever reason, not viable. It has just opened up a huge storm of medical ethics and criminal challenges and concerns. And the result is, while, while all of that is being sorted out, what that means is that families in Alabama who have tried to conceive, have not been able to conceive, have used science to get embryos in hopes that that embryo will implant and become eventually a live baby, that those families can't do anything anymore. And that the doctors who specialize in this idea of helping families have children, can't do anything until they figure out what this legal and medical criminal challenge is going to be. It's, it really is the most anti-life thing I, I have seen as part of the cascade since Roe v. Wade was overturned. I mean, this is, this is not an anti-abortion thing. This is an anti-life thing. These are people trying to have biological children. Or uh, it's, it's, it really baffles me um, that this is how far— the religious sentiment has gone about identifying life. It's a very specific fundamentalist Christian sentiment about when life begins and apparently it's when two cells connect. There's a lot of science that is about two cells connecting uh, that may potentially also be challenged at this point. President Biden weighing in saying that uh, this was not only outrageous and unacceptable but he's concerned that this, quote, won't stop until we restore the protections of Roe v. Wade in federal law. That's a key part of his reelection campaign is to codify that in federal law. And But Nikki Haley sided with the Alabama Supreme Court saying embryos to me are babies. So when you talk about an embryo, you're talking to me about a life. Um, I will, I will say this is personally very challenging for me. Uh, I've been very open about the fact that I was not able to conceive the traditional way and both of the children that you see posted all over my social media feeds and that I talk about regularly were conceived with IVF. And would my doctor or me have been charged with committing a crime, potentially even murder, because we implanted an embryo that didn't take? Is that, is that where we're at right now? Uh, so, I, I just, it, it boggles my mind that my, the existence of my children is something that now the Alabama Supreme Court would want to regulate, just the fact that they even exist or how they came into being. And what a sad state of affairs that rather than using, sci- using science and medicine to advance who we are, and what we can do for each other and how we can be families, um, that the priority right now is to restrict and curtail that and meet a very specific vision of what um, life what life should be and that also the corollary to this right now is that in Alabama and elsewhere, the effort is also underway to force women to come to term to bring babies to term even when it's risking their lives or the and the argument being made is oh well you know just give them up for adoption if you can't take care of the baby not like you know the the social safety net is in place to help Families uh, economically, when they have children. We have in the United States one of the worst uh, child care systems, uh, barely have any uh, child care leave, but one of the worst child care systems in the developed world, far behind Canada and European countries. Actually, even in Cuba, you know, this in Cuba, they guarantee you milk for your child up until the age of six. Like, you know, other, other places take care of families and children. So we're going to make sure that we get into some of the legal maneuverings around this so you understand what's at stake, not only in Alabama, but how this is going to be advancing forward and what to watch out for. And as I said, President Biden say, has said that this is one of the key tenets of his reelection campaign is to try to codify abortion rights and protections for uh, conception and, and women's health care as part of federal law. The other thing that President Biden was up to today was meeting with the family of Alexei Navalny. Uh, that is the dissident, the opposition leader who was imprisoned in Russia by Putin, died while taking a walk outside of a prison in Siberia. Everybody is assuming uh, that based on previous incidents of how Putin has dealt with challengers and folks who defied him, that this is at minimum The result of Putin's brutality, if not a direct attack on Navalny. Uh, His wife spoke, uh, had just been informed about her husband's death. Reports hadn't even been publicly verified yet when she was set to speak at the Munich Security Conference and made an impassioned plea to the free world to stand up for democracy on the world stage. And that, that is going to be a big narrative and a challenge that we face as a global community, as this is the year of elections. Taiwan just had elections. India is going to have elections. The United States, these are consequential elections that we are facing that will prove the test of whether or not democracy can truly deliver for people. As part of that Russia meddling in political affairs, we are now aware of the fact that a gentleman by the name of Alexey Smirnov not with it's a v not with the uh, f so Ale- Alexander Smirnov was arrested again in Nevada this time to make sure that he did not flee the country back to Russia. Who is this guy? Oh, you know, you may recognize that whole Hunter Biden impeachment, uh, President Biden impeachment scenario that Jim Jordan was trying to cook up. Well, it turns out that the FBI informant lied. Uh, They figured out that he lied and that he was likely connected to Russian intelligence and that this was all part of another Russian plot to interfere in our political system. Like we just it's the the movie is writing itself at this point. Millions of dollars at this guy's disposal. Uh, Significant relationships with Russian military intelligence. These are these are quotes from the arrest affidavits. Uh, He was indicted by. The L- an L.A. grand jury uh, a few, uh, several days back, and that was as part of the uh, investigation into Hunter Biden's taxes and gun charges, and he was officially charged with lying to the FBI in 2020. Uh, Smirnov is a U.S.-Israeli citizen, dual, which is leading to its own complications at this moment. But we are also not seeing, despite these revelations, any of the congressional Republicans who championed all of this backing off. This was, this was a central, this informant and witness about what he had to say about Ukrainian firm Burisma and you know, the money and corruption. All of that was what they were trying to use to impeach Biden. None of those congressional Republicans have actually publicly said, oops, our bad. Right? They, they haven't, they've stopped amping this up. But they haven't backtracked or apologized for anything. And so the, their smear campaign is still there. The damage that's done to the Biden family, to the integrity of the American investigation system, all of that is still there. And, and then, of course, the, that shadow hand of Putin and Russian intelligence is also still there. And it's all working to the advantage of Trump in this moment. So I welcome you to chime in and let me know what you think is the greater threat to democracy. 866-997-4748. 866-997-4748. Is it the loss of women's bodily autonomy state by state? Is it the global influence that the malevolent actors out there are adversaries who feel threatened by what the United States represents on the world stage. What do you think? What what is that bigger threat that we have to watch out for in 2024? 866-997-4748. 866-997-4748. We've also had a challenge with the United States and it's standing on the world stage kind of Secretary of State Tony Blinken being iced out at the G20. That's the gathering of the world's 20th largest economies. The G20 makes up about 90 percent of the global economic influence. And because the United States did not or vetoed rather a ceasefire at the Security Council, vetoed a ceasefire for Israel and Gaza, uh, been getting the cold shoulder in at the G20 meetings. Rafah, the holdout, the last city uh, where all of the refugees from northern Gaza have arrived, uh, that the bombardment of Rafah continues. And Israel said it will attend a ceasefire talk in Paris next week, but that may be too late for the people of Gaza who have been suffering not only under the brutality of Hamas, but now under the attack by the Israeli military. Egypt uh, is still holding out, saying that it will not accept these refugees. Uh, It is, in fact, building a wall of its own, uh, kind of like a, a wall containment area in case... Uh, they do get more people coming through that border egypt saying that its its own economy cannot handle the influx of 1.5 million refugees nor as an arab state does it want to be party to this idea of supporting or helping the displacement of the continued displacement of the palestinian people so uh, the challenge for the united states is not only domestic it is global in nature to really show the world what our values are and are we able to create policies and stand up for those values on the world stage um really tricky in the middle east right now tiffany haddish those of you who follow her instagram account the comedian uh a jewish black comedian is uh, you know been talking about her desire to see what's happening for real on the ground so she's heading to Tel Aviv and Jerusalem that's certainly gotten a whole bunch of folks worried and concerned about what exactly you know she's going to do as a celebrity influencer is is she going to carry water for the Israeli government what does it mean for a celebrity to go on their own fact-finding mission and only go to Israel as opposed to going to Gaza now having talked to many Israelis and and been covering this uh, what Netanyahu has done to the democracy of Israel. I, I suspect that Tiffany will see that there is a robust protest movement in Israel right now uh, demanding that Netanyahu take care of the hostages first, stop this invasion of Gaza. Uh, and so Netanyahu, it, his policies do not represent, certainly do not represent all of what is there and represented in Israel. Similarly, that Trump should he get reelected, and as he did uh, you know, his, in the last administration, did not represent all of what is here in the United States. So, um, as we discuss Israel and Gaza, I, I try to make sure that we also talk about the leaders and how that's different. The leaders and what they're doing to a country is distinct from what people are experiencing on the ground. 866 997 4748. Welcome your calls uh, on this and any topic. Let's see. Um, Let's take Sean in California. Sean, I was asking folks, what, is, what, what do you think is the, the greater threat that we have we need to watch out for as we head into 2024 political season? Sean?
1: Well, hey, Naira, and I heard your story about um, in, in vitro and, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, your kids are beautiful. And that's one thing. But the biggest threat is when you frame it like that, it, it is Putin. And it's people like mm-hmm. Putin because they hate us for our freedoms see they they don't want us to succeed in a democracy obviously because if we succeed then it undermines their uh, you know dictatorships or their autocracies. so that to me is the biggest threat because if we win these elections and we think of it in terms of uh, you know we have to make decisions we're not always comfortable with you know I, I I loved Barack Obama, but besides him, in my lifetime, uh, you know, I never agreed with <laughs> like most of the things that some politicians did, but I knew I didn't want to shoot myself in the foot. But if we can win this election and win more, get the House and the Senate at least the house. but i I'm optimistic. it just it it depends on turnout. Then we begin to undo, sadly, we have to undo what the Republicans have been doing to attack women or control women is the mm-hmm. way I look at it. You know? I, I, and, mm-hmm. and it's ridiculous mm-hmm. to me because embryos, if we want to get scientific, that Supreme Court wasn't being scientific. It was being religious. And that's a, a threat. Oh, And,
6: uh, and, 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 and Sean, thing, a very, uh, thank you for that reminder, Sean, a very particular sense of religion also because in Judaism and Islam, that the, the soul does not come into an embryo immediately at conception, right? It's a very particular sense right. of what, of what, um, you know, what life means and what life is. And again, I, the idea of an embryo in a freezer separate be having as much autonomy as a woman or an actual child, uh, you know, a woman like me or a child in the foster care system. I mean, like it's, it's the, 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 uh, the desire to take care of cells over actual living breathing people still boggles my mind that somehow we have landed in the, in that weird space where that is that is Normal, like this, the new abnormal that that is that that's where we are. Um, Sean, really appreciate you listening and chiming in, folks. Um, please do give us a call and chime in as part of this conversation, 866 997 4748. when I come back after this break, uh, we're going to dive into some more discussion about some of these topics. Uh, we have a whole slate of guests for you this evening, and I'm excited um, that we can bring to you not only. Um, Denora G- Gattachow, excuse my uh, pronunciation there. She's an expert on Gen Z, Gatacho of Gen Z and Millennial Voters, CEO of DoSomething.org. We'll also have Jeet here, who's a national affairs correspondent for The Nation. And then Kristen Rowe Finkbeiner of the CEO of Moms Rising. So we'll have some folks here who can dig into news of the day and, in particular, uh, what it means to be American. As we head into this 2024 political season, I'm your host, Naira, filling in on Tell Me Everything.
0: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
1: There really is no place like home.
0: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. (sighs) That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes.
1: Talk about starting the morning right. Just
0: like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be convenient, comfortable. Ah.
2: Hey, all. Glenn Kirshner here. Friends, I hope you'll join me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters. We talk about not only the legal issues of the day, but we also talk about the need to reform ethics in our government. Here's one example, the oath of office. You know the one. I do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Let's add 22 words to that oath. Quote, and I will promptly report any instances of crime and or corruption by government officials and employees of which I become aware. Friends, our democracy is worth fighting for join us in this fight. Because justice matters. Look for Justice Matters wherever you ordinarily find your podcasts.
6: Welcome back, everybody. This is Naira filling in on, for John Fugel, saying on Tell Me Everything. I am very excited to be joined right now by Denora Gitacho. She's an expert on Gen Z and millennial voters. She's currently the CEO of DoSomething.org. That's the nation's leading hub for youth activism. And, and Denora, I'm, I'm really excited to hear from you about what you are anticipating the role of Gen Z and millennial voters to be in this year's race, races, actually house races, presidential race. So much has been discussed about this voting block and, you know, the idea that they are young voters. And I will, you know, say that young at this point is anything under the age of 45, which also happens to be the rising majority of voters. So, Denora, thank you for joining me today.
4: Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate the reframe around the broader sense of what's on the ballot this year, right? It's not just about um, the presidential election, right? We at at Do Something, the Hub for Young People and Activism, really focus in on what can young people do up and down the ballot in their local communities to make a difference. And what's at stake is 8 million young people will come into age in the electorate this year in 2024, making up 49% of eligible voters when we think about the combination of Gen Z and millennial voters. If they turn out to vote at the same rate they did in the 2020 presidential election, they're going to make up 37 percent of the electorate. That's transformative is the honest answer. Right. And so what I say at Do Something and my colleagues say I do something every single day is democracy is a full contact sport. And we need Mm -hmm. all voters participating, not just voting at the top of the ticket, but voting up and down the ballot to make sure that their voices are heard. Right. Because we know how much power exists at the local level to affect change on the issues that young people care about.
6: All right. So w- let's start with the top of the ticket, because there, there's a lot of concern about Biden and the enthu- the lack of enthusiasm among millennial and Gen Z voters and black voters, the you know, critical parts of the Democratic coalition that won almost four years ago. How, how do you address those concerns and specifically the, the idea that Biden's age is what's getting in the way?
4: So I'm always honest and and frank with young people and all voters for that matter. Right. And what we've seen demographically with the shifts that are happening, but also the trends in our society is that most voters, but especially young voters, care much more about the issues than they do about the candidates. Right. So they turn out to vote because they care about affecting change on transformative transformative policy issues, everything like. Uh, economic certainty, gun violence, climate change, the mental health crisis. These are all the issues that young people, especially do something members who are between the ages of 13 and 25, care most about. And so when I talk to voters and I talk even in settings like this, I wanna make sure everybody knows that really we need leaders and we need to elect leaders who are gonna enact those policies that matter most to the voters. I don't wanna hear candidates, um, I don't wanna hear young people telling us that they're not ready to go out and vote because I think there's a real, Um, narrative reframe that we need to do around what's at stake in this moment. It's not about the age of the candidates at the top Mm -hmm. of the ticket. It's about who's most qualified to enact transformative policy solutions for the American people. And I'm not, you know, do something as a nonpartisan organization, so I'm going to be very clear about that. What we tell our young people is you have to vote not once. It's not once and done. It's not about the age of the candidates. It's about which candidates are going to enact the most transformative policies on the issues that matter most to young people. And you have to do that again and again because time t- change takes time, right? So I think part of the moment we're living in as more digital native voters come of age, right? Who grew up with the generations that had technology at their fingertips and only mm-hmm. know the digital native lifestyle. They think that if you voted once, you're done. Right. I like to say change isn't going to happen. Hopefully in the 72 years it took between the convention at Seneca Falls and the 19th Amendment. It's also (laughs) not going to take the 72 seconds it took to order your dinner. Right. And so we need everybody to realize when you're participating in democracy, it is a full context war and you have to participate again and again. Voting on Election Day matters unequivocally full stop. You know what also matters? on January 2nd, after all of these new candidates are inaugurated, that you're holding them accountable to the reasons why you voted for them, right? And that you're making sure that your voice is heard in their district offices and in the halls of um, you know, the legislative bodies and at the executive office to make your voice heard on the issues that motivated you to go vote. I think we have a real problem in America that there's this huge drop off, right? We think mm-hmm. we go out and like candidates, and then we effectively treat them like we coronated leaders. We didn't coronate leaders. Hold them accountable. Show up at their offices, make your voice heard so that they're continuing to stay focused on the issues that may, you know matter during the election season.
6: So some of what we are seeing in the lack of enthusiasm from Gen Z voters, and it, it's, it's a lack of enthusiasm for the political system. Um, mm-hmm. You know, everything is depressing. You know, there doesn't change is impossible uh, that you know, that that really cuts across. All politics and as you said your answer is it's a full contact sport. you have to be engaged on a regular basis not just the vote and you're done but what about those who say they have not seen delivery of policies that they have been championing for for example um, you know the it expanded voting rights or just a renewal of voting rights or um, the the type of student loan cancellation debt that folks were her- hoping for
4: So I'm not going to engage your listeners tonight in a civics lesson, but the reality is we also have to know how the systems work, right? Mm. Which branches of government are responsible for which activities? At the end of the day, the facts are clear. We've had the least productive Congress in record recent history. We need to be holding our Congress people accountable for not doing anything on behalf of the American people on these issues that matter, whether it's voting rights and modernizing our democracy and ensuring that all eligible Americans can vote in a free and accessi- free, fair and accessible way. Yes. I mean, Let's be
6: clear, the filibuster is not something Biden controls.
4: Right, exactly. And I think that's the problem is that we put all of the pressure at the feet of the executive branch when the legislative branch has a role to play as well. And so, again, in a nonpartisan way, I'm going to say, uh, you care about student loan debt, the Biden administration has taken multiple steps using the executive authority that it has, even having some of that authority challenged by the Supreme Court, again, another branch of our government, and making sure that there are checks and balances. If we are unhappy as voters about the level of student loan debt forgiveness that has been given to the American people and we wanna see more, we need to be calling Congress members and telling them to do their job, right? And I think there's, un- there's misplaced angst if you will, about who's responsible and what's at stake when it comes to not seeing transformative policy solutions being enacted.
6: And I will say this also, that the Biden-Harris administration has approved nearly $140 billion in student debt cancellation. That's 3.9 million borrowers who have now seen their student loan debt canceled over the course of two dozen executive actions. Now, that's executive actions. That's not congressional. Uh, So I'm not sure if folks wanted a, you know, one sweep of the pen and everything was gone. But in the course of three years, $140 billion saved off of the backs of 4 million student borrowers like that's, That's pretty impressive.
4: That's very impressive. Right. And again, and I think it's important for us to know, again, without taking us down the civics lesson 101, who's responsible for what what you know legislative and policy solutions and records speak for themselves and so what i encourage all voters to do is actually know the facts right we live in an age a very digital age where we digest and consume news and sound bites without actually checking the veracity or the integrity of the sources that we're finding those from but also knowing enough about who actually has the power to affect change on the issues that matter most. And so when voters are going to the polls this year, especially young voters, because that's who I'm most focused on mobilizing and engaging, I want them to actually do their diligence, like check the records of the elected officials to see have they actually stood up for the things that you voted them into office for before or the reason why they're running for office this first time. What we're hearing from Do Something members, again, 13 to 25 year olds from all over the country in every single area code in the United States, the top issues that matter most to them are living wages or cost of living, student debt, affordable education, affordable health care access to home ownership and housing and job opportunities right they really want to know they have a sense of economic certainty this is their first time coming of age for many gen z and millennial voters in a time of economic uncertainty and you couple that with living in a digital age where there's this 24 7 news cycle that's perpetuating the gaps that exist and so it it is causing angst and it is making young people very skeptical uh, on the heels of a very booming economy and so i want to tell young voters it is up to you it is up to all of us to do our part to hold our elected officials accountable if you care about LGBTQ plus rights if you care about mental health or the intersection of gun violence and mental health if you care about how do we fix the climate crisis and ensure that we don't become the dinosaurs of our lifetime if you care about economic uncertainty or even reproductive access that's what's on the ballot this year not just individuals but in fact people who are responsible for enacting policy and so what we all I need to do is be clear about the records of those elected officials who are on the ballot for re-election, those who are running for the first time and what policies do they stand for? And then as I will continue to continuously say, we need to hold those elected officials accountable on inauguration day and thereafter. we
6: mm-hmm. We're talking with uh Denora Getach. Can you pronounce your last name for me? I apologize.
4: No worries, it's Gatacho.
6: Gatacho. It's such a cool name. I um Denora Gatacho. Denora um You as a CEO of Do Something, what are you asking folks to do in these upcoming congressional elections?
4: It's a great question. Well, first and foremost, what I hope is of the eight million eligible young people who uh, are coming onto the rolls this year, claim your civic power. I really want every young person who is eligible to vote to register to vote and go out and vote, I want them to bring a friend, right? The power of young people in the peer-to-peer engagement cannot be understated. And so first and foremost, you can't participate in the full-contact sport that is democracy if you're not a registered voter. So if you are eligible to register to vote, many states have taken steps to make registering to vote more accessible and more seamless. Take advantage of those options whether it's online voter registration or automatic voter registration, pre-registration for 16 and 17 year olds, right? So if you are, a sep- you know, someone who pre-registered a couple of years ago, make sure that your registration status is up to date and it's current. Mm-hmm. Then I want you to make sure that you are thinking about what is your voting plan, right? I think the main place where young people, but all people for that matter, get tripped up is, what's gonna happen on election day? Do you live in a state where there's early voting? If so, take advantage of those opportunities, right? If you don't live in a state where there's early voting, make a plan for how you're gonna vote on election day. And that means knowing who's on the ballot, what's on the ballot, what are the positions of the candidates who are running for office? And then what are you gonna do on election day to make sure you get there, right? Because we know that anything can go wrong on election day, right, the weather changes, or Mm -hmm. you get stuck at work, or there's traffic, or you need to help out at home, or you gotta stay at work. Make sure that you have a plan to ensure that your vote is cast and counted so that you don't feel disengage from the system. It is so inspiring to see how many young people have turned out to vote and increasingly in successive elections are making their voices heard at the ballot box. This election is no different. And I don't want to engage in the hyperbole of like, this is the most important election ever. All elections are important. Young people need to make their voices heard. If, in fact, right, we know that we are at this turning point for our uh, electorate with, again, 49 percent of eligible voters in 2024 being made up of Gen Z and millennial voters. That's powerful, right? I, I'll, I'll age myself for your listeners. I'm a Gen Xer. Sneaking in a- <gasps>
6: Dun, dun, dun. It's all right. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm what's known as a geriatric millennial.
4: <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know what that, I was like, is that a Zenio? Um
6: I, I, I guess. I, I was, it's the, you know, we're, we're the moms apparently who have taken over the TikToks and destroyed it for the young folks
4: destroying it you've not destroyed you're just enhancing it hence why they're listening to music from our generation so there's that part i've digressed make sure that of those that powerful segment of voters that are going to come of age now you have the power if you truly and i was reflecting earlier this evening so many young people marched and protested in the streets in 2020 to make their voices heard about so many policy issues that mattered right and we were at this seminal moment for our democracy and our society Let's not lose sight of that. Right. If you were motivated, whether you of age to vote or weren't in 2020, many of the issues that were at stake then have not been resolved. Right. And so to the extent that we truly want a more just and equitable society and democracy, we need young people to make their voices heard. We need to look at those congressional races. Right. And make sure that we know the record of the candidates and where they stand. Make sure we're pushing to hold them accountable, right? And that they are speaking Mm -hmm. to the issues that young people really care about. Because I'll tell you, many young people in Do Something's membership complain about that the most. Literally 87% of Do Something members tell us that they do not believe that elected officials have their best interests at heart and are listening to the policy concerns of young people when they're making policy decisions. That's a problem, right? Trusting government Mm -hmm. at Mm a record low. And so the way to push back against some of that is that we have to be more proactive, right? Yes, the responsibility is on elected officials to be responsive to the needs of their constituents. Conversely, us as constituents need to make sure that our elected officials are hearing our voices and not just on election day. So know where the candidates stand, know what issues they voted in support of, ask them the tough questions about why there weren't more votes in Congress this year and why didn't they do anything to address the issues most important to the American people and then make your vote accordingly, right? We. The benefit of living in a digital age is that we have more information available to us and at our disposal than previous generations have. The harder part of that is that we have to be more discerning in how we're accessing information to ensure that it's accurate, that it, there's integrity, and that we can trust and verify it. But once we do that, we have to make sure that we're holding elected officials and candidates accountable. You can not just get to say anything and not be held accountable for that, whether that's in the voting booth or once you're elected to office.
6: And Donora, I, I want to uh, cite something for you from that was said at CPAC just a few hours ago. That's the Conservative Political Action Committee. Jack Posobiec said, quote, welcome to the end of democracy. We are here to overthrow it completely. We didn't get all the way there on January 6th, but we will endeavor to get rid of it. What is your reaction to that? That this is what the Conservative Political Action Conference is now talking about?
4: I'm going to take a beat cuz that right very I mean, they 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 they're they're
6: right. beyond yeah, saying I the mean, quiet part out loud right that, that that's that's that okay got it that's yeah
4: I I would say to that one I'm very concerned about those who wish to undermine democracy and overthrow democracy for their own aims right this society while built you know on some systemic inequities has consistently evolved to meet the needs and to be more inclusive of new American majorities, right? From the, you know, over almost 250 years ago from what it looked like then to what it looked like now, I'm an African-American woman. Like I was not contemplated as part of the democracy Mm -hmm. that I now get to participate in. When I hear statements like that, I find it reprehensible. I find it um, demoralizing, but I also appreciate the clarity with which people Mm. speak about why democracy no longer suits us, because that means it is even more important for us to be protecting the constitution and the democracy that has made the society what it is. That is hard, right? Because when you think about small d democracy, that is an ideal that sits up on a shelf for many people. It doesn't feel accessible. It's definitely not paying your bills. It's definitely not um, ensuring that you have the economic security and mobility you need to be successful. That said, it is for that very reason that people seek to come to this country to be able to live in a society that is promising liberty and justice for all. And so it is more important than ever. And I'm not saying that to be hyperbolic to your listeners, that we do what it takes to protect and enshrine our democracy and its principles for all Americans, and especially from those who seek to undermine it for very selfish reasons. Um, We have seen time and time again in history that when new majorities come of age, there are efforts to thwart democracy or change the rules to sp- to serve the interests of a diminishing mon- minority. This cannot be another one of those moments. We should all have learned from the lessons um, of January 6th and make sure that we're never living those those um, incidents again. And so I am, again, incredibly, you know, caught me off guard to hear it, but I, I'm not mm-hmm. surprised is what I would say. But I don't also want us to live in fear right i don't want us to believe that we have no power to do anything to stop those who seek to undo democracy we have the power in the same way that those who have different viewpoints have the power to push for the change and for the system that we believe that should be upheld and so i don't these notions of fear tactics and discouraging voters from believing that this democracy is theirs and that they can harness the power to sustain Um, And more importantly, claim it as their own and shaping it is what I'm working daily with my colleagues to do something to do something about, no pun intended, because I do think that this is a seminal moment where the integrity and the credibility, but the actual institution of our democracy is on the line. And if we don't all get very clear about that and do everything in our individual and collective powers to fight back against that. Mm -hmm. We don't know what the consequences will be. Right. There are many authoritarian countries around the world that we can look at as an example of what would happen. And I fundamentally believe that enough Americans don't want that to be the case. If that is true, then we all have to do something about it. And that means not just registering to vote and voting. It means bringing your friends, bringing your family, making clear to those who seek to represent us in elected office that that is not the viewpoint and does not represent what, you know, the majority of Americans want for our society.
6: Really, really appreciate you giving us that context and perspective, because it is that sense of drive, not if not optimism, at least consistent drive to move the ball forward, that we need to maintain, particularly in, in light of the blatant undermining of democracy that's going on and, and you know, the plans to uh, dismantle anything that resembles social safety nets, uh, protections of civil rights that we currently enjoy. We see them being dismantled state by state. And we know very openly about Trump's plans to do that if he regains the White House for another four years. And before I let you go, De Nora, uh, can you give us your thoughts on the approach to protecting women's bodily autonomy? What is what does that play look like since we've been using these contact sport metaphors?
4: Hmm. Um, I you know, I, this is an issue that the vast majority of young people care deeply about. What we know to be true from our membership is that and from, you know, national statistics as well, is that over 70 percent of young voters, 18 to 29 year olds, say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. We did work last year in the 2023 election cycle um, with voters in Ohio and Virginia and Kentucky to just let them know what was at stake, make them aware of what was on the ballot. Again, I will say to you and your listeners, young people go out to vote, vote for the candidate. I mean, for the issues they support, not always as much for the candidates they support. And so, it's always important for voters of all ages to know what's at stake on the ballot, right, and what's driving them or motivating them to turn out what we know to be true is young people really want to have
1: mm-hmm.
4: hands off their bodies right and mm-hmm. so you know i think it's important for us to be mindful if we're talking about the lack of trust in government officials and being responsive to the will of voters this is a place where elected officials are severely out of step with the, the pulse of america and so again this is the place you asked me before about what should people do about congressional elections you should hold their congress members accountable right now we have, you know, since Roe was overturned, we don't have the same protections at the federal level. And we see many states actively working to roll back protections that existed there and to limit access to reproductive choice. This is not what young voters want to see. And so they should go out and make their voices heard to those elected officials who are seeking to represent them and tell them either you can, you know, take action in Congress, bring legislation to the floor of Congress to make sure Mm -hmm. that it was enshrined in the law and for those who are unwilling to do that, make their voices heard in a different way. But it is important to know what's at stake and and more importantly, for us to have a representative democracy. Right. So I'm saying this to you, not as someone who personally has a position on these issues. But when we look at the statistics, it's clear that young people are motivated and fired up to vote based on this key issue of whether reproductive health Will be an issue that's on the ballot and whether candidates have a position on the issue
6: denora so glad that you and i were able to chat today we were able to share your voice and your guidance with our listeners we've been to- talking with denora get get a chow denora getacho expert on gen z and millennial voters she's a ceo of dosomething.org uh, denora i also appreciate your patience i know names are important and mine, I respond to all sorts of things because mine gets butchered all the time by folks. So thank you uh, for your patience with me. You can follow her on the social medias at D-E-N-O-R-A-G-E-T-A-C-H-E-W or at do something. Please do follow her, take her guidance, do something. Folks, this is the time that we all need to be doing something. You can also do it.org. dot uh, Thank you, Denora, folks. I'm going to take a quick break here. And when we get back, I'm going to make sure we get your calls. 866-997-4748. 866-997-4748. I'm your host, Nayra, filling in on Tell Me Everything.
7: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole?
6: Welcome back everybody. This is Nayra filling in for John Fugelsang on Tell Me Everything. I want to bring into this conversation somebody who I've enjoyed listening to and reading, Uh, Jeet here. He is a writer for The Nation. Uh, Jeet has been uh, talking and writing about uh, American politics, the Indian American politics in particular, as a correspondent. Uh, He's joining me today to discuss two things in particular. I'm going to start with the divided landscape of Indian-American politics, specifically because of how the Asian-American vote is playing out in districts around the country. Jeet, thank you for joining me today.
5: Great to be on the show.
6: Um, Jeet, talk a bit about how Tom Swazi's race, where you know the, the Democrat who managed to Flipped the seat that Jordan Santos took by surprise. Um, one out of every four voters um, was Asian American, and I suspect actually South Asian, uh, in particular. Mm-hmm. What what are we seeing in terms of the power of Asian American votes to flip congressional seats? Where where are we seeing that happen?
5: Sure. Yeah. I, I, I mean, and I think to clarify, I think we should mention. You know, we're uh, really talking about people from the um, Indian subcontinent, uh, you know, predominantly Indian Americans. But actually, I think the same patterns also apply to uh, immigrants from Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, And... uh, Yeah, this is like uh, merging as a very uh, powerful group. Um, uh, First, I think it's one of the largest uh, um, ethnic immigrant groups in America right now. I think they've overtaken Chinese Americans. Uh, And uh, they're very strategically located. Um, uh, If you look at the sort of swing states like uh, uh, Michigan... Pennsylvania, uh, they um, are there, and in each of these states, are also it tends to be uh, it's a very affluent community. It's actually uh, considered now the uh, wealthiest uh, ethnic group, but they're very much located in like uh, well-to-do suburbs, uh, which are the you know place where Democrats have had some success in turning. uh, red votes into blue votes, uh, and especially because the suburbs are diversifying. And, you know, you see many more people of many more hues in the suburbs. But uh, Indian Americans are definitely at the forefront of this.
6: And it's interesting to hear about it, um, the group that was previously known as AAPI, um, which mm-hmm. really is a massive um, geographic region to kind of lump together in terms of ethnic identity yeah. in the United States. So help us understand in a more granular, ter- granular terms, what, why these groups were lumped in together. um, And what, you know, what are we learning now more about the voting trends of the various ethnicities mm-hmm. that make up that group?
5: Sure. Yeah. I, I, I mean, like, uh you know, uh, the subcontinent is like, it is a continent. So in some ways to talk mm-hmm. about Indians is like talking about Europeans. Like, are you talking yeah, it's about like Indians and talking...
6: then the rest of East Asia and then all of the Pacific Island is somehow, yeah. you know, more yeah, than two and a half billion people. Yeah,
5: I I I mean, it, I, I think really the roots go back to the sort of conception that, you know, anything out there is Asia, right? Uh, mm-hmm. this, is, this is why we have two different uh categories of Indian uh, Native Americans and people from India uh, so there's always this tendency to kind of like uh, lump together um, but um, as to the uh, other question I mean like it is um, it would, one interesting thing is that it's a very strongly leaning Democratic uh, uh, party vote and this is in some ways at odds with its class position because it's also as I mentioned a very affluent group uh, but if you look at um uh, it uh, granularly uh, in detail uh, you know one thing is um, issues of there it's an immigrant community uh, and most of uh, uh, them come from the post 1965 you know the uh, uh, Changing the immigration law, which made it much less racist, uh, and so they don't look very favorably to the Republican Party as the uh, you know increasingly the nativist uh, anti-immigrant party. Uh, and the other issue is religion. I mean, it's religiously diverse uh, as India is. The you know like it's usually about like you know fifty-four, fifty-five percent Muslim, but then also lots of Buddhist uh, Sikhs, uh, Christians are uh, both in India and in America. A sizable population but these tend to be religious minorities and to the extent that the republican party is the party of christian america uh which is mm-hmm. only increased under trump i mean he has you know like very flagrant christian nationalists as his advisors uh that's a very hard sell to to people you know who are um, uh, uh have any sort of experience of religious pluralism
6: and that's excuse me, some of the challenge that we're seeing in even the rise of nationalism overseas, right? We, Modi, we talk about uh, his role in India and really blurring the lines between church and state, or in that case, uh, you know, Hindu nationalism and what used to be a more pluralist sense of democracy. And the we we do see an alignment of many Indian Americans in supporting Trump. Yet, we also see blatant racism, coming from yeah trump. yeah, so yeah how, no no actually does...
5: well i i mean the, the, the part, the argument that the uh the, there is okay I, we should be clear first of all that like uh as a group uh, asian americans and particularly indian americans are very democratic they wanted 70 percent for joe biden uh the but there is a that leaves 30 percent that is attracted and trump very much courted these voters mm-hmm. uh in 2018 he had this notorious Rally in Houston, uh, uh, Howdy Modi, uh, where Modi spoke, mm-hmm. and it was like fifty thousand people came out. And the Trumps, the, the argument that the people like Steve Bannon and Trump make to Indian Americans is, you, you're the good immigrants. You work mm-hmm. hard. Uh, you came legally. You're successful. You know, uh, we uh, will work with you, and uh, then you don't have to be associated with the bad immigrants, uh, the the ones that are poor that cross without documentation uh and for you know like traditionally unfortunately like it, going along with american uh, racism and white supremacy is a good way to rise in the social ladder uh you know mm-hmm. groups like the irish the italians and the jews who were once pariahs you know like as they became more affluent they decided they to be seen as white and then you suddenly see like an irishman like pat buchanan who's Totally nativist, or um, a Jewish fellow like Stephen Miller, who's also nativist. Like you know, like you if you if you climb the ladder, you know, there's a temptation to push it aside so no one else can climb.
6: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking with Jeet here, who's a national affairs correspondent uh, and columnist for The Nation. Uh, Jeet, Yee, we talked a little bit about. The This, you know, how uh, Trump has been appealing to certain, you know, certain minority segments um, and just, you know, peeling away small percentages uh-huh. uh, may work to his advantage. Uh, how, how much of this should be a concern between, uh, you know, black voter, not, you know, not as high mm-hmm. enthusiasm. Um, we're also seeing and hearing that, um, you know, in addition to the minority voters, um, Trump's uh, broadly depressing voter turnout overall, and then there's the third party candidates like RFK Juniors and the Cornell Wet. Like, what, what, how much of a spoiler is this voter depression or uh, you know peel off going to be?
5: I, I think it can be quite significant. I mean, I do think that after 2020, we have seen some movement uh, uh, of these voters to the to the right. Like, not. You know, still a minority phenomenon, but there's some peeling off, which I think is happening across the board. And I think the Democrats need to address it, like try to find out why they're losing these voters. Uh, but I mean, I also, I think that Democrats are going to get splintered on both sides. Let's say you have people moving to the right, but you also have people moving to the left. I mean, in my experience, like, you know, people from uh, South Asia, there is a minority who are uh hindu nationalist and islamophobic but most people you know have a broad sympathy for the palestinians and one saw this at the um uh, diwali uh, the uh, celebration diwali celebration uh, last year where biden invited uh many prominent uh indian americans and uh, some of them refused to show up uh in protest mm-hmm.
6: Mm -hmm. You mentioned this as part of your um, column, Morbid Symptoms, and this was earlier on in the early uh, phases of the Israel war on Gaza. You said a memo to Biden administration policy dissidents, don't mourn, resign. You said the best thing that staffers who are frustrated by the president's policy in Israel-Gaza war can do is quit. I mean, does that apply to voters also to just quit?
5: No, no, I think it's a it's a different obligation. Actually, I think the obligation for voters, it's more engagement, right? Like, I, th- I think like, you know, people inside the administration, I think if they did quit, as some of them have, it sends a powerful message. Uh, if you're a voter, you get a powerful message, not by disengaging, uh, not by staying home or even voting for someone who uh, can't possibly win you uh, gain power by engaging, like by, by a protesting, going to your local congressman, uh, you know, telling them, you know, what they have to do to earn your vote. Uh, and I think we're seeing some of that. And I think that, you know, like a lot of these protests are very embarrassing to the Democrats, but I actually think it's good for the long-term health of the party. And I think it's actually good for November, that you, you get people who feel, you know, if they, if they get heard and if they're, you know, uh, uh, there are changes in policy that are significant, uh, I, I think th- those voters uh, can be won back, mm. and, uh, and I would suggest. What, to what do you, how that yeah, good, how,
6: how, how do those voters get won back when you've got what 10, 11 months left?
5: Well, I, I mean, I think that there's a couple of factors. What uh, one is, I think people are going to pay more attention to Trump and mm. uh, like all the problems with him. Uh, but beyond that, I think uh, that you know they uh, emphasizing the policy successes. Of the Biden administration, I, I, I think you know the Israel situation. I, I do think that they need a pretty significant policy shift. I think what they're doing is not working. Uh, mm. But I, I, I also think that like the party is more popular than Joe Biden. So if you get all mm. the sort of you know party, Obama, Whitmore, you know uh, Elizabeth Warren, get them out in the hustings. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think people can be won back.
6: Well, I mean that that's you know we've had a couple of votes for optimism uh, in the, in this case and in, in uh, the course of this con- uh, this show today eight six six nine nine seven four seven four eight eight six six nine nine seven four seven four it'd be it'd be helpful to hear from listeners uh, as we talked in the first hour about what threats uh, greater th- greatest threats we have in twenty twenty four and also to hear from listeners about well what what do you have optimism about um, this election cycle so uh, we started with you with optimism Jeet. Um, any any you know what do you think is the biggest threat then
5: oh the biggest uh i i mean look i just think it, it is that sort of disenchantment that you mentioned like i, I think that mm-hmm. i don't think a lot of people are moving over to trump frankly but i think that there are people who are going to maybe stay home and you actually need like everyone out as much as possible uh i think foreign policy is like the wild card and unfortunately I think, you know, even though I think there's stuff in Biden's foreign policy that I like uh, and and I think Trump is much worse. But the polling kind of shows that, like, when foreign policy dominates the news, Biden suffers, as conversely, when the economy dominates, uh, uh, he does well. So in some ways, like that creates a perverse incentive uh, for, like, uh, uh, people who might want Trump in power abroad, like if, if they keep causing crises, then, you know, like. Biden can't actually talk about the things that he should be talking about, which is like, you know, abortion, uh, uh, the economic policy, uh, you know, like uh, the the courts. Like, I think there's I I think Biden has a and the Democrats have a very strong package of issues. The question is, how do you override the noise? And unfortunately, I think foreign Mm -hmm. policy is like a kind of like a noise, like it just short circuits your ability to communicate with people.
6: Yes, and it and it is the. You talked about this at how it, it's the rare election where foreign policy ends up on the ballot, and it's not as if there's going to be you know if you if you pull people they're not going to be like oh you know Israel and Gaza overrides any concerns I have about the economy, uh, but it it does come into play in a sense of how people think. A leader is representing them and their values. And, and it's, it's a tricky time for the U.S. and, it, and how it represents its values on the world stage, especially, you know, given the rise of Russia, um, you know, war in Ukraine, war in the Middle East. Um, what, what are you hearing about how foreign policy, how people are wrangling with that, this issue that typically is not considered a kitchen table issue?
5: Yeah, no, it's not considered a kitchen table issue, but I think that uh, it goes back to something that you were saying before I came on air. But you know, like the, there was a sense of chaos under Trump, uh, and I think Biden was very much elected to bring back normality. And I think part of what he struggled with is that through circumstances beyond his control, you know, uh, things have not really gotten back to normal. If you if you look at his polling, the first place that he kind of Started to suffer and go down was the Afghan withdrawal, which I support, mm-hmm. and which I don't think the things that happened were Biden's fault. It was like a you know it's been a bad mission for many years, but still uh, you know Biden kind of took the bullet for that, and, uh, and that and that's created the sense of chaos. You know, combined with the inflation, uh, and then now with like you know the war in Ukraine and the war in Gaza. Um, Uh, yeah I I don't know like uh, uh, in terms of any solution except that like I really think talking about domestic issues talking about you know like reminding people you know like how important abortion rights are and I I mean I think they're helped out by you know the fact that all these uh, the right wing judges keep going more and more extreme so you know that is a kind of I, I think there are ways of making the conversation about where you're strong rather than make it about where you're weak
6: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So then what uh, what are Biden's strengths? There's, like you said, that sense of normalcy. Um, I mean, it's he's been able to do quite a bit with executive actions, even on student loans. I mean, one hundred forty yeah. billion no, dollars. No, this is, yeah, no, that's, right? like, true. that's and a I, I lot of that's... money for nearly four million people. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, executive action can be strong especially and now I'm going to go back to a week, especially in the face of a Congress that can't seem to get anything done. I mean, I'm I'm trying to not just be such a downer about how broken our system is right now, when really I want people to participate and, and you know, be part of this system and try to make it better.
5: Yeah, I know. Yeah, and, and actually, I mean, I think that in terms of what Biden has done, he's put like very good people in uh, many positions. Uh, I think of, you know, sort of Lisa Khan at the uh, Mm -hmm. FEC and I think like to remind people that you know like if Trump gets in it's going to be Miller is in charge of immigration again right and not just Mm Miller though like you actually look at you know like the these think tanks like the Heritage Foundation uh, are creating like lists of personnel of people who they say are vetted from their term and it's like much worse than like the first Trump administration where he had to rely on some normal Republicans like these are real hardcore fanatics and Christian nationalist um, and I think that like you know advertising what Trump would actually do and like what are the damages that like uh, could happen compared with you know like Biden running a fairly decent administration I think on the economic stuff I mean I see a lot of the populist stuff that they've done uh, you know, just hammer home at the, you know the prescription drug price issue um, I think there's a lot of strength. That what gives me optimism is that Democrats have been overperforming in like you know like almost all special elections uh, since Dobbs. So
4: that I, yeah, sort of indicates yeah,
7: it, it well, is it, it, of, it, it's, to me in My it,
5: mind indicates is the best indication of where the electorate is and mm-hmm. where the Democrats are strong. Um, uh, uh, you know, like I think he needs to put Kamala Harris out there much more. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I think you don't think he needs awesome to hide example. her?
6: I mean, some people seem to be scared of getting her out on the road, thinking that she's does more yeah. damage than benefit.
5: I don't think that's true. I mean, I think that they've given her, look, I not to be too cynical, but uh, they gave her all the kind of jobs um, that would hamper her, like, you know, like to, to go talk about immigration, uh, you know, when uh, the border was a boiling issue. And, like, cynically, that's what kind of presidents do so that, you know, the vice president, people don't start thinking of the vice president as, you know, like, well, why can't we have them, right? <laughs> so, uh, uh, whereas I feel like, you know, if you have Kamala Harris going out there as, you know, talking about, like, abortion all the time, uh, you know, I think that plays to her, her uh, strength. Um, her, like, legal sense, you know, talking about, you know, the damages trumped into democracy and we will we'll do like if he gets control of the judges and what these Republican judges are doing. I mean, you know, like overturning Roe v. Wade was just the beginning. Like, you know, uh, we saw um, in uh, 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 Alabama, the um, uh, decision on uh, uh, embryos. Uh, A lot of these judges are like getting more and more extreme. Uh, The current Supreme court, they might overturn a lot of, like you know essential uh, uh economic legislation and really roll back the new deal so I, I just think you know like if you have a strong person like cabela like uh barack obama uh you know like uh, bernie sanders elizabeth warren you can really mm-hmm. get uh, um uh, get your message across and override like all the static
6: yeah yeah, overriding the static. Um, we're talking with um, Ajith here, uh, who has been um, writing for The Nation uh, as a national affairs correspondent. He's also host of a weekly podcast called The Time of Monsters and pens the monthly column Morbid, Syst- uh, Syst- rather Morbid Symptoms. Ajith, what what else are you looking at in the political landscape? Um, Well,
5: I mean, uh, I mentioned this, uh, the Trump, um, the dangers of Trump. Uh, We're really getting a good picture of uh, through the Heritage Foundation, this uh, Trump 2025 of what their intentions are. Um, And I think it's very interesting that you Trump's big problem in his first administration was he didn't have the people. He hadn't quite convinced all the sort of think tank apartheid. Of his way of thinking, and that's changed. Uh, And now, if he comes into power, he'll have thousands of sort of uh, his little uh, flying monkeys uh, that will, (laughs) you know, carry out his uh, wishes. Uh, And like to me, that is the big story. And uh, more than anything, like you know, like we get a clear picture of what they intend to do. And that also includes like overturning uh, democracy, but also you know, like really weaponizing the police. Uh, possibly deporting people for political opinions like supporting Palestine. So uh, I I really think that, you know, the more focus that we can get on, you know, what Trump will actually do, uh, the better. And the very terrifying people that, you know, uh, are around him. I mean, one of his, the guy who's sort of touted as being the likely chief of staff under a second Trump administration, uh, you know, uh, he runs a sort of Christian, Christian nationalist um think tank and he's basically said you know christian nationalism is that's a good Mm -hmm. thing uh so Mm -hmm. i i think that you know to me that's a very big deal
6: i'm with you It's, it's the when you're talking about two old guys the people around them uh help show you the character of those men rather than just their age and there, there's yeah, a massive yeah. difference and distinction to be made there. Uh, and I'm, I'm one of the first people to be like, oh, my God, seriously, are we recycling the same folks? And <laughs> I certainly have PTSD from many of these same conversations nearly four years ago. Yet here we yeah. are again. But I I get the difference between the winged monkeys and Stephen Miller and the genuinely good people trying to make the system work that we have today uh, jeet I, I hope you keep on uh keeping on and, and write and uh share your advice and wisdom um with the rest of us and um where where's the best face place rather for folks to follow you in the social media spaces
5: oh uh, yeah i i'm uh, fairly uh, big on Twitter. It's uh, that's still, that still on the Twitters anymore, yeah, or, or, or X or whatever it's called. So uh, at here Jeet. that's that's the best place to find me. But otherwise, yeah, you know, the, the Nation Magazine, uh, you know, it uh, does great work, and I'm, I'm grateful to have it as a home.
6: Yeah, it's, it's a good spot, and you've got some great colleagues there. So um, g- shout out to the nation for all the work that they do and keeping us on a, a more progressive and uh, hopeful path of what is possible with our system. And you can follow Jeet at here. Jeet, thank you so much, folks. I'm going to take a quick break here. When we come back, I'm going to make sure you jump in on this conversation as well, 866-997-4748. I'm your host, Naira filling in for John Fugelsang on Tell Me Everything. Welcome back, everybody. This is uh, your host, Naira, here on Sirius XM. Progress filling in for John Fugel saying on Tell Me Everything. And one of the things we've been talking about today, given recent news events, is the challenge to women's bodily autonomy, most recently leveraged by the Alabama Supreme Court, and and, and just the head-scratching reactions of science and definitions of life that were now applied to IVF, which was the natural progression of where the logic was going about life and conception was to eventually um, chip away at in vitro fertilization. And and they've succeeded in Alabama uh, by calling an embryo a human. They are like a human life. They've now made it impossible for families in Alabama to use medical treatments to conceive. And there's many families like mine that exist because of IVF, and uh, they don't really seem to care about that. In fact, they'd probably walk around, I don't know, maybe they call them demon children for all I know. I mean, they're, they're not, I'm not raising them Christian, so there's, there's that as well. I, I, to, to you know kind of wrap our heads around this and figure out a path forward i um, joined by Kristen Rowe Finkenbeiner, who is the executive director and CEO and a co-founder of Mom's Rising. She's also board president of the Mom's Rising Education Fund. Kristen has been, Kristen, rather, has been involved in public policy, grassroots engagement. You know, she's won awards for her articles and her writing and uh, hosts the, a radio program called Breaking Through, which is powered by Mom's Rising. So Kristen is going to help us break through. This moment, Kristen. Thank you so much for joining me today.
3: Thanks for having me.
6: I. Uh, what was your initial reaction to the Alabama Supreme Court ruling, and and now that we hear that the that the third IVF clinic in Alabama has stopped operating as a result of it?
3: I mean, first it was disbelief, mm-hmm. then it was really horror because the impact of what's happening with our freedoms being taken away is intensely bad i mean when we're looking at our children having fewer freedoms than we did it's a time of shame and a time to rise up it's a time to rise up and make sure we're registered to vote it's a time to pay attention to exactly where the candidates stand on the issues it's really a time when we need to pay attention, because our country, in many ways, is going in the wrong direction when we're looking at the freedom to decide if we're going to have children, and if so, when and how many.
6: Mm -hmm. This coincides with um, the week in which CPAC is being held. And Jack Posobiec, a guy who has millions of social media followers, uh, got up there on the stage and said, we didn't get to end democracy on January 6th, but we will do it this next year. And we're going to replace it with this right here. And he raises his fist. And I see this young white man doing this. And I am just like, what went wrong in your life that this is what you're doing to feel a sense of self-esteem and power and I'm never going to blame parents for how their kids turn out now that I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old wow are they their own personalities but there there is like some something has deeply failed for this to be such a thing in a younger generation of men
3: yes Hundred and fifty percent, yes. And one of the things that I think is important is this is not the majority of people in the United States of America. This is not the majority even Republicans. What we're looking at is a small group of far, far far-right extremists who are extremely well-funded and extraordinarily loud. What we saw with the Alabama Supreme Court ruling, which is so far only impacting Alabama, but as you noted, has rippling national repercussions, is that ruling of frozen embryos in a Petri dish being considered children, unborn children, defies scientific common sense, And really puts our ability to determine our bodily autonomy and to figure out how we're going to make our families in deep, deep risk. Now, this is not, as you mentioned, the only problematic thing that's coming out of these far, far, far right extremists who, again, are a very small group. We're also seeing attacks on access to birth control. If you are against Mm -hmm. access to abortion care, the number one way to reduce abortions is to have increased access to free birth control, right? Studies show that. And so this isn't about abortion is what these attacks. It's not. It's not. Yes. With these attacks on our birth control, with these attacks on, you know, being able to create a family, with these attacks on our bodily autonomy, this is about really utilizing loud, loud, loud voices to try to break apart the electorate with a lot of disinformation. There's a lot of false non-medical information being spread around to win the election for an extremist candidate who, as you mentioned at the recent conference, you know, we had fists raised saying awful things about destroying democracy. That's not patriotic. Patriotic is fighting to make our country better and better. Patriotic is fighting for our freedoms, including to make sure our children don't have fewer freedoms than we do. What we have going on on the far right is unpatriotic and it is appalling.
6: It it is. And I appreciate that you're coming to this conversation with energy, right? Because that is so much of what we need is the energy to continue to do the work. Otherwise it just I I, I like you I said, disbelief is a first reaction, even though apparently a uh, producer shared a clip of me about a year and a half ago saying that this is exactly where this was going in the you know, in the immediate aftermath of the Dobbs uh, decision that this is where we're gonna end up with IVF and um, being challenged because it's all about, you know, when a baby Uh, when you define uh, human life to begin. And I I still am in disbelief that we arrived here and it's so easy to feel defeated. Um, What do you do to not feel defeated, to keep that energy and enthusiasm there to keep doing the work?
3: I look at the wins. Something that is so important is to understand that each of us are often far, far, far more powerful than we know. And there is a disinformation campaign going on on multiple levels. We just talked about medical disinformation. Well, there's also voter suppression disinformation. There's a campaign by the far right right now to tell people that people aren't in a massive uprise. People aren't engaging. Well, I'm here to tell you that is wrong. Moms Rising, we have over a million members, including members in every state in the nation. We are experiencing double the expected turnout, double. Like we're expecting 100 people and 200 people turnout and our local events, you're experiencing already 6,500 people have volunteered for November's Get Out the Vote work. We're not even there yet. Like, we're nowhere near November. We're experiencing double the expected low-level contributions. We're experiencing doubling everything. And so when we look around at what's happening in movement organizations like Moms Rising and many more, what we see is that people are outraged. They're appalled. They're doubling down on rising up. Then we look around at what's happening with voters. In every state where abortion has been on the ballot, red, blue, purple, anything in between, abortion has either been protected or the protections expanded. And no place when the people have had the opportunity to be heard have abortion rights and our freedoms of bodily autonomy been pulled back. We know Mm -hmm. that people have the power, people are rising up, and that's why We see these far, far right extremists not only yelling just absolutely hateful and awful things from the rooftops, but also really pushing voter suppression um, by saying that nobody cares. So it makes people feel alone. Again, you, listener, are not alone. More than 80 percent of people, Democrats, Republicans, independents, support the right to decide about if, when and how we're going to have children. And about 99 percent of or 90 percent plus of adults have it used or supported birth control at some point in their life. Yes, we have well-funded minority of people, small group of people, yelling really loudly, awful things. But don't believe them. Be inspired by looking around you, mm-hmm. seeing the people who are rising mm-hmm. up, and knowing you're not alone.
6: Mm-hmm. You no, know, I'm glad you reminded me. The the small minority of people who are ridiculously well-funded is part of the problem, but they're not. It's not the majority. This is not how the vast majority of Americans—more than eighty percent—support sensible gun r- gun control. Vast majority of Americans support a woman's right to choose. Like this is truly a stacking of the system by people who are very crafty and well-funded, but their goals are bonkers and not supported by the majority of the American public. Not even the electric, just like people. And that's a helpful reminder particularly as we you know, are heading into another season where we, we need to do the work. Um, talk about some of the wins. I mean, even uh, when, we, when these issues were brought up to voters uh, on, on referendum, they, Kansas, women, uh, women and men turned out, they, they shut that down, constitutional, state constitutional ban. Um, they've shut it down in other states. There's something about the, the legal system or the judges and who's been placed on the bench, that is a problem. And as opposed to how people are actually voting.
3: Yes, and that actually brings something really important forward. When you vote, make sure you vote all the way down the ballot. Not Mm -hmm. every judge is elected and on the ballot, but many judges are elected and on the ballot and it matters who's on the bench. So when you go to vote, fortunately we have Google, we have you know massive information at our fingertips. Check out the positions of the judges and then be sure to vote for the positions of judges that support your family and what you want. And the other thing I have as a tip, and I think this is an important tip. If you hear, listeners, something completely outrageous something completely hateful, something that makes you go, what? Consider the source. There is so much targeted disinformation right now um, really trying to pit voters against each other in order to grab that White House seat um, that you really need to look and say, who would lead with hate? And that is not traditionally the Democratic Party. I'll just say that right here. And so you can really kind of determine Um, and check your source when you hear a bunch of hateful stuff. It's usually, usually not true. It's important to pay attention and also to talk with our kids about the importance of paying attention and media literacy. This is a spectacular show. There's real information coming out on this show. Um, So listen to shows like this one.
6: Well, I appreciate that. Absolutely listen to shows like this one, um, because who else will tell you things that, uh, you know, the Heritage Foundation is tweeting. And take a listen to this, Kristen. Quote, it seems to me that a good place to start would be a feminist movement against the pill and for returning the consequentiality to sex. Conservatives have led the way in restoring sex to its true purpose and ending recreational sex and senseless use of birth control pills oh that just hurts my brain so much
3: what okay that that hurts my brain so much outrageous on so many levels so because
1: (laughs) i mean i mean
6: family planning literally the idea birth control isn't it's it's to just to make sure that when you have kids it's because you're ready you're ready that's really it like it's that simple Yes. It's that simple.
3: I mean, kids oh. are expensive. Let's let's. It costs two hundred thousand dollars on. average. They don't want us to have childcare. They exactly. don't want have
6: us to have childcare, right? They don't want yes. us to have paid leave from work or yes. any federal any federal system. Do you know my my brain exploded when I found out that in France, they will send you a nurse to your house once a week postpartum to check if you're okay. Yeah. I
3: mean, and we that have... nurse also
6: not only checks to see if you're OK, will also like, you know, help pick up stuff and like fold the baby's clothes for you. Like what? They send you help here? You go, you have a baby, you go home. Good luck. Thank you very much. I mean, I had more training for like, you know, flipping burgers at McDonald's than I did for in theory for for having a baby. That's it. That's how much they care about kids in America. But they care about the embryos. Don't forget that, Kristen.
3: The Frozen. You know, we have what I would call a level 23 situation out of only 10 levels with the far right extremist Republicans. (laughs) They are talking about family values when they don't value actual families at all. They have stood in the way time and time again of doing things like passing paid family medical leave so that we as the United States of America have the same types of policy that virtually every other nation on the planet Earth has when a new baby arrives or a serious health crisis strikes. They have stood in the way time and time again of passing affordable childcare when childcare costs more than college and childcare workers are some of the lowest paid workers in the United States of America. They're standing in the way of long term care, elder care, fair pay, and so much more. And we are here in this moment where they're also standing in the way of birth control. You know, it's like, what are you doing, far right extremists? Clearly, you're about decimating democracy and decimating families. And by the way, decimating the economy. Because what people don't realize is that 86% of women do have children by the time they're 44 in the United States of America. And the majority of families. Need moms in the labor force in order to make ends meet. And being a mom is a greater predictor already of wage and hiring discrimination mm-hmm. than gender. And moms of color due to structural racism mm-hmm. experience compounded wage hits to the extent that Latina moms are earning just 47 cents to white dads dollar and black moms just fifty-two cents to white dads dollar. This is 150,000% not okay. It's also 150,000% solvable. Studies show that when you pass that care infrastructure, paid family medical leave, child care, health care, equitable health care, by the way, that's a whole conversation we need to have, and fair pay for care workers, that we close those wage gaps, which lifts the GDP mm-hmm. by at least 5%. Because guess what? Who makes the consumer purchasing decisions in a country that our GDP is fueled by our consumer purchase decisions, women and moms. So if you take us out at the knees, if you take away our birth control, if you take away our bodily economy, if you take away our access to child care, paid family, medical leave and all of that, then you take away the engine of the economy and the country. So these mm. conservatives are out to lunch and we need to vote them out.
6: We are talking with Kristen Rowe Finkbeiner, who is the executive director CEO of Moms Rising. I want to bring in another data point here as we're talking about the conservative attack on women's right to choose, bodily autonomy, and just you know basic health care at this point. Um, in 1965, the case of Griswold V. Connecticut is the one where it affirmed, the right to birth control under the 14th Amendment. But listen to why this came up. Plant Parenthood League of Connecticut, its medical director, a licensed physician, they were convicted for giving married persons information on how to prevent conception and prescribing a contraceptive device for the wife's use. There was a criminal conviction for a doctor that had to go to court all the way to the Supreme Court out of Connecticut and have that be overturned, that's where we're back at this point, right? Like that's what they would prefer to get back to is even within the context of what they call holy matrimony, they do not want people planning when to have kids. Simple as that. That's the problem. It's
3: not okay. It's not okay. And There's we do okay that. Had
6: also, like, way to, way to alienate an entire younger generation of voters. I mean, this is your party strategy for growth, Republicans?
3: It's their strategy for wedge issues, pitting voters mm-hmm. against voters to try to win on the margins. And it's not going to work because listeners like you are paying attention. You're talking with your friends, your families, your neighbors, and you're saying, are you hearing what I'm hearing? Because this is flat out ridiculous. We also recently had a case in Ohio where a mom was charged with a felony, which was then overturned, thank goodness, because she Mm -hmm. had a miscarriage. One in five pregnancies end in miscarriage. So the road that we're going down is really the criminalization of motherhood. And that is Mm. also not okay it's again un-american it's unpatriotic it's just awful and it is not just pulling our nation backwards it's pulling our nation apart we can do better we are better we can bend the arc of justice toward freedom not away from it and we've seen actually big wins in the past couple years like we passed the pregnant workers fairness act through congress we passed the pump for nursing mothers act through Mm -hmm. congress we passed uh, one year of postpartum health care coverage through Congress. We can do big things together when we share our voices, when we share our stories, when we vote. And so the message here is don't give up. This is a decades and decades and decades ridiculous strategy by the far-right extremists. Again, a small group that don't represent the polling of the American public. And we're going to catch up, and then we're going to make sure this never happens again.
6: Yes. And I, I, I wish I had not taken so much of it for granted at a younger age. It's like, all right, I just got to make sure I got I to gotta make sure I do my own work. 866 997 What does the work look like for you this next year? Uh, as we're talking to the CEO of um, Moms Rising, what else is on your action agenda for this coming year?
3: Right now, WIC, the Women and Infant Children Nutrition Program, is actually under attack. Also, hello, who are we? Um, so we're pushing. I mean, why, need- why would
6: we? Why would we feed the neediest children in our country? Why would we do that?
3: And this, this again, is something that boosts our economy and our families alike. You know, when we're making consumer purchasing decisions, when we aren't able to buy food, then we're actually pulling out um, of our economy and undercutting our local businesses, our farms, et cetera. So WIC um, has a high return on investment, and we're fighting to make sure that nobody gets cut off of WIC in this time of need when food is actually increasing in costs. The other thing that we are doing, and this is something that is um, a beacon of hope, is we're pushing for the expansion again of the child tax credit. So during the pandemic, we were able to have a temporary expansion of about $360 per child per month of the child tax credit. And because of that, it boosted our economy significantly. More people who needed to be in the labor force were in the labor force because they were able to afford childcare, rent, um, food. And it lifted 40% of all children in the United States of America out of poverty. This is proof positive that these policies work. So that temporary expansion sunset. And so we're fighting to make sure that we get another expansion. It did pass mm-hmm. through the US House a couple of weeks ago. It's in the US Senate right now. We want everyone to call their US senator and say, pass the child tax credit now without amendments. And this goes back into our conversation that we started with. There's rumors of terrible poison pill amendments on the child tax credit in the Senate that would give fetal personhood to. Uh, and a fetus leading to a national abortion ban in the form of an amendment. So we don't want that, but we do mm-hmm, want child mm-hmm. tax credit to pass um, and move forward in its expanded uh, methodology.
6: Yes. And I, I love that your organization has an approach to engaging and working with policy that is about getting stuff done in the system and the process we have right now, but also understanding the cultural politics of what's at play more broadly across the country. Um, and it, it's just so helpful to have both of those pieces as part of the puzzle. So, Kristen, thank you so much for the work you're doing and making sure that we're aware of the work that we have to do this coming year. What What's the best um, way for folks to track your work and to get engaged with Moms Rising?
3: You could just go to Moms Rising anywhere. So we're at Moms Rising and Moms Rising online. And we're also Mamas Comporer in Espanol. So we're open and available 25 hours a day, I like to say. <laughs>
6: <laughs> 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 and one
3: of the things that's super eight, popular, days <laughs> eight days a week, eight days a week, 390 days a year. Uh, one of the things that's super popular that people are already signing up for are handwriting postcards to low-frequency mom voters in key areas to give them the information oh. about where they can vote. And so, postcard parties are already starting to be organized. And you can find out all about all the things on our website, including the signups.
6: Find out about all the things. I mean, listen, I I will I will write to other moms and be like, you, you
3: just just need to vote. Really, you need to make sure you do that this time around.